in a series on our search for significance, and we conclude that series this morning. Uh, we've been talking about this kind of built-in, hardwired need that mankind has to have relevance and importance and significance in our life. And we've talked about the reasons for that search and why we find ourselves seeking affirmation and seeking purpose in life. And it has to do with our separation from God from the beginning, from the garden, when through sin we were separated from him. And through Christ we've been rejoined with him, but in this journey we continually find ourselves trying to fill the hole in our heart with other things. We've talked about the dangers of judging our life and significance by our performance, by our level of success. We've talked about the dangers of becoming addicted to the approval of others and to the need to be accepted and affirmed by those around us. A couple of weeks ago, we discussed why we have the need to blame others and ourselves for the things that we feel are not adequate in our life. And last week, we talked about shame. And that's all leading us to this point today because this is really the, 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 the structural uh, foundation of all of this. And that is the concept of guilt. The guilt that we feel and the biblical concept surrounding guilt at heart in this entire discussion is the burden of guilt and how that weighs on us. Guilt has been a part of this yearning since the garden, since the beginning of this search. Guilt continually beats us down and makes it more difficult as we try to fill our lives and become confident in our identity in Christ. I think a lot of us struggle with guilt for a lot of different reasons. Some of us have had poor examples of Christian love uh, in our upbringing. Some of us have suffered difficult times or made poor choices that stay with us, that live with us. And we're burdened by the guilt of those choices, whether you've experienced hard times that have fallen on you or experienced hard times as a result of something foolish you've done. We have all dealt with past sin. And in dealing with it, we feel the weight of guilt. The question to begin with is, what is that? What is guilt? Well, when we read the verse that Christian read for us, Romans 8.1, it's really eye-opening. If you're dealing with this burden of guilt and you run across that passage, that can be almost startling. The idea that there's no condemnation, this, this weight that I have on myself, I don't have to worry about as a child of God. I've been doing this to myself for no reason. That can be jarring, a little bit alarming, but certainly, uh, as we understand it better, something that gives us a great deal of peace. So what is guilt? Well, man has actually struggled to define guilt for a long time. Um, in psychology and sociology, these things are studied. Um, Freud, who was a bit of a quack, uh, let's be honest, Freud... Uh, sought to define guilt by, by de describing it as the result of social restraint. In other words, as you're growing up and, and your parents scold you for doing something, you learn that that thing is bad, and when you do that bad thing, you fear the loss of social esteem amongst those around you or the love of people around you, and that is what we call guilt. That's how Freud defined it, for however much you want to put stock in Freud's definitions of anything. Uh, he believed it was the fear of losing the esteem of others when we act against social norms. Uh, Adler said that it was a refusal to accept our own inferiority, that when we behave inadequately, we feel pain. 
we feel that inadequacy of the world around us, of us in the world around us, and that pain is, is called guilt. But these are man's definitions. They have nothing to do with the God, uh, the judgment of God, or the nature of God. Christian authors Bruce Naramore and Bill Counts offer their definition by differentiating true guilt from false guilt. And they describe it this way, that true guilt is an objective fact. False guilt is a subjective feeling of rejection. And they base this on the Bible's description of theological or legal guilt. We have trespassed against the law. We have transgressed against God. But the Bible, they say, and rightly point out, never tells Christians to feel guilty. We are described as guilty. We are described as having transgressed or trespassed, but we are never told that we must feel the psychological burden of guilt. And yet we do. And some of us do because we think we have to in order to be pleasing to God. It's an interesting thing. What we need is a distinction between the concepts of condemnation that we deserve and the loving motivation of God to do better. Because there is a difference. It's important, and we have a conscience, and, and the Bible talks a lot about obeying your conscience, following your conscience, not violating your conscience. It's important that we have something in us that tells us right and wrong, but yet we want to avoid the burden of something that drags us down and destroys us from within because guilt, the feelings of guilt that destroy the destructive qualities of that are straight from Satan. God does not ask you to sit around feeling bad about who you are, but he does ask us to understand the state that we're in with our soul. So what's the difference? Well, we need to make a distinction here. And that distinction is two words. And I, th these are my words that I'm picking here to use. Uh, so that let's not, don't get too wound up on the words themselves. That's not necessarily a biblical thing, but I'm trying to get there. Guilt, which is the pain we feel for wrongdoing, and conviction, which is the understanding that we have of right and wrong. So we want to differentiate between guilt and conviction because that's at the heart of our search for significance. The thing that holds us back the most is the feeling of unworthiness when it comes to God and our place with him. So we need to differentiate between what it means to feel guilt and what it means to feel convicted. Guilt is destructive. Guilt is a destructive force. That's what we're describing when we use that word. And it's different than simply having low self-esteem. It's different than simply feeling like you're not good enough. It's feeling like you are not worthy enough for a reason, for something you've done. It's the same difference in when we tell a lie, maybe we feel guilty for that. But if we are called out for having bad table manners, we feel low self-esteem. We feel inadequate amongst our peers, embarrassment or shame. Those are some different things. Guilt is the weight of having sinned, of having done something unacceptable to God versus doing something unacceptable to society. So we need to understand that difference. The root of our guilt is the separation from God. It is the trespassing and transgressing of the law. But guilt is, used, is, is only used to refer to man's condition. And when you look at Scripture and you see the concept of guilt demonstrated, when you read about guilt, understand this, it's only used one way. It's only used to describe the state of mankind's soul 
prior to salvation. Once we become children of God, there is no description of this understanding and feeling and weight of guilt that is applied to those who are saved. The Christian does not feel guilt. The, the non-believer does. And they're the only ones under the weight of what we would call guilt. When we sin, prior to knowing Christ, when the unbeliever continually lives in sin, guilt shakes its fist at you and says you need to pay the price for what you've done. That's what guilt does. When we become Christians, what we are acknowledging and accepting is that Jesus Christ stood in our place, hung on the cross for our sin, and put his hand up to guilt and said, no, no, not anymore. The price has been paid. Guilt is no more. This burden is lifted. Jesus Christ, by his substitution, and because of his substitution, we no longer have the consequence of that guilt. And God sees our condemnation removed through Christ. Hence, Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The condemnation is removed. The guilt is now powerless. How is that different from what we feel, though, when we talk about conviction? While we are free from the burden of guilt, the Holy Spirit, the Bible tells us, works to convict us. It works to motivate us, to help us to understand right and wrong. The Spirit reveals our sin to us in order that we might understand God's righteousness and choose to live better. And it's important that we understand the difference in the two. Because as I said, one of them, one of them can bring you to your knees and make you never want to get out of bed and give up trying to be a faithful servant of God. That is of the devil. Guilt is from Satan. Guilt is the whispering in your ear that says you'll never be good enough. Conviction is the motivation from the Holy Spirit working in us to help us understand where to move and how to get closer to God in how we live. Such conviction is not intended to produce feelings of guilt. Our status with God is secure because conviction deals with our behavior, not with our status before God. In order to be properly convicted and motivated by that conviction, we have to feel secure in our relationship with God. If we do, we move in the right direction. If we don't, we surrender to the depression and the bitterness and the anger and the sadness of guilt. As we mentioned before, guilt applies to those who are not clothed in Christ. And it's a lie from Satan about your worthiness. In fact, if we think about it that way, it's actually kind of, kind of a nice thing the feeling of conviction. Because that means conviction is a privilege of the saved. To feel convicted in right and wrong, to feel convicted about behavior and the need for change in the life of a Christian is a privilege that is afforded to believers. While the rest of the world has to live in guilt until they accept Christ, we live in conviction, free from condemnation and from guilt. Let's go back and look at some verses now in Romans because this is an excellent letter that, that Paul writes here to describe these things. Let's go to chapter 5 
and look at verse 20. The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace amounted all the more. Now, the first half of that verse is really hard. Uh, it's really challenging. This section of Romans 5, 6, 7, 8, well, it is some of the hardest in Scripture to understand. The law came in so that transgressions would increase. God gave us the law so that we would sin more. What does that mean? How, how do we understand that? And why is this so difficult to accept? Move forward to chapter 7 and go to verse 5, and we'll read uh, several verses here. Chapter 7, verse 5, For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death, but now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit and not in oldness of the letter. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would not have known coveting if the law had said you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and, though it, and through it killed me. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. This is confusing language. And yet, read through that and as you begin to understand it, you'll see how intuitive it really is. When you drive, if you, and, and some of you are driving up to camp today. I love that drive. It's got some beautiful features to it. I hate the interstate section as you're getting closer to camp. They're from like Baraboo to, to Milston. That, that's the section I stay on the interstate. Uh, maybe I'm getting old, but I feel like people drive really fast on that section. Now, I used to drive fairly fast. I used to be a fast, I used to get tickets a lot. It was, it was bad. But I've slowed down a little. Part of that is age and understanding my limitations and understanding the fragility of life, having children in the car. But I will go the speed limit and people are flying by me. It's crazy. Speed limits have always been an interesting sociological study. Because if you put that limit up there, people will always get right up to it or just past it. If you took it away, we would probably drive at a speed at which we feel safe. Some people foolishly would drive 120 miles an hour and think they were safe. But most of us would drive slower because we feel safer. Because there's safeguards in place, we have speed limits, we have seat belts, we have crumple zones and airbags, we feel very safe and a little bit emboldened to drive faster. And once that sign is posted, we now know how far we can go with it. But when you take those things away, we put up our own guardrails. We put up our own securities and we're more careful. That has been shown to be the nature of, of mankind and Paul here is speaking to a similar idea that I didn't really know what coveting was. I never had a problem with it until the law said don't covet. And then all of a sudden that's all I wanted to do was covet. When you tell a kid don't do that, then they suddenly want to do it, right? You tell them not to touch something, they immediately want to touch it. Because that's how we're made. 
That's how we're wired. And Paul is talking about this idea of the law. He's talking about the concept that the law actually produces sin, and the law itself is death. Go to Galatians now. Slide over to Galatians chapter 3, and look at verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. The song we sung just a moment ago, then I found him, I beheld him, bleeding on the accursed tree. The author got that directly from this verse. He who hangs on a tree is cursed. Christ became a curse for us in order to remove the curse of the law. Difficult passages, difficult things to understand. Now let's go back to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, we read verse 1, but let's read verse 1 and continue to verse 2. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Understanding these words, law and sin, are very important to understanding what the author is saying here. Um, law often takes the format of if-then, right? And if we were to convert this to, a, to an if-then passage, verse 2 here, it might say something like, if you operate in the spirit of life in Jesus, you will then be set free from sin, right? Uh, the law of the spirit of life, uh, of life in Christ Jesus has set you free. So if you operate in the spirit of life in Christ, then you are free from sin, and conversely, if you operate in sin, you will die. So the author is talking about sin and talking about life and talking about law. So let's consider these passages in light of that understanding. The benefit of our, our and when we say sin, we're talking about the, the sin nature, that thing within us that desires things we're not supposed to have that thing within us that is activated and charged up when we're told no, the thing that makes us want something because we can't have it. So the benefit of that, that sin nature and its response to the law is to show us the depraved condition of humanity. We respond to law and to rules with this desire and the benefit for us as Christians is it helps us to understand what state we are in apart from Christ. It demonstrates the helpless condition. And it seems that God wrote the law in order to do this very thing. God loved you enough that he wanted to save you. But in order to save us, this creation that he made, and built within us all these things like pride and, and self-interest, in order to save a people prideful and self-interested, he had to break us of the notion that we could do this ourselves. We had to be humbled by the hopelessness and helplessness of mankind in order that Jesus could work within us and that God could work through him. And so he gave us the law. The law was made to show us how ineffective we are at attaining perfection. The law shows us our hopelessness. We cannot win with law. We only win with Christ. 
That's the essence of these difficult passages. If you, if you can coalesce all these passages we've read together, it says you don't win with the law. You only win with Christ. When we talk about law, um, one of the, the, we, we think of the law of Moses, and some of these passages do refer to the law of Moses. That last one we read talks about a law of sin and death. Law is a cause and effect thing. It's two events that are connected. That's why we have those if-then statements. The law of gravity says, if I jump, I will come down. The law of inertia says, if I push something, it's not going to stop until something else stops it. Laws of thermodynamics, laws of nature, these things that we understand. When we use law in that term, not in that terminology as Paul's using it in chapter 8 of Romans, we understand that there's a cause and there's an effect. The law of sin and death is disrupted by the law of love in Christ. Love trumps law. Law is there to demonstrate the hopelessness of mankind, to demonstrate the helplessness of us in our sin, and to, by contrast, glorify the grace of God through Jesus Christ. We only win with Christ. Through the Spirit, we feel and we stand convicted of sin. But through Christ, we stand free and liberated from guilt. And it's important for us to identify and define and label those feelings correctly. It's important for us to understand what God calls us to because he does not call us to a life of guilt and sadness. He calls us to a life of liberty and grace and freedom. And that freedom is maintained by the Spirit's conviction, which keeps us operating in God's will. But there is no need for us to wallow in the guilt of past sin because it has been destroyed. And in all the things we've talked about for these several weeks, and wherever you find yourself, if at all, in any of these situations, chasing after success because you believe it'll bring you some kind of purpose, chasing after the approval of others because it's the only way you're going to feel significant and wanted and loved, whether it's your tendency to blame other people or to beat yourself up or to feel shame, it all has roots in the concept of guilt. And you can search the scriptures. Guilt, as we define it, has no place in the life of a Christian. Only conviction in the Holy Spirit. The guilt has been satisfied. The sin has been forgiven. We are free. And because of that, we matter. Because of that, we know that we matter. So when you're passed over for that promotion or you're let go from that job or somebody didn't tell you good job on whatever you were working on or didn't compliment the sermon, okay, you don't have to sit with that and live with that and feel worthless. Or when you make a mistake, you don't have to blame others or yourself. Or when you fall short, you don't have to feel the weight of shame and guilt. That's been erased. The search for significance for the children of God ends in understanding the cross of Jesus Christ. That's where our significance lies. That's where our value is formed. 
That's where the price was paid. If we were worth the very Son of God to die in our place, we cannot, by anything we do, imagine, say, or think, ever diminish that price that was paid. If we stand convicted in the truth of the Holy Spirit and we live according to the calling we've received in the death of Christ, then we will have the significance that our heart has desired and that man's heart has desired from the beginning. Not putting our faith in the failing things of this world, but putting our faith in Jesus Christ to be called children of God, to be redeemed by the blood of His Son, to be free from this search because we have found our purpose. It's in Him. And we're just called to live like it. If you need encouragement or prayer or study, you need to, if you need help finding your significance or your value, I can tell you, you have value right here. You have value here in this body as a part of this community. You matter. You're important. And we want to continue walking with you. If there's anything we can do, we, we offer this opportunity now as Jonathan leads us in song.